Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our series in Acts. Guys, great to see you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Nick and I'm going to be continuing our sermon series. We've been in the book of Acts. Before I do, I just want to say I'm so jazzed about Bottom Line. Uh, Jeff Moore is a great buddy of mine and I commend him to you in the, the highest of, of ways. But that, that thought that we could love on and mentor and release and, and help um, to thrive those who are business women and men amongst us, you know, thriving spiritually and physically and relationally and vocationally and, and the, whole, the whole lot. You know, this is your church. You know that we're committed to that. Uh, the capacity for that to change the world, I think, is, is pretty cool. Okay, so the last couple of weeks, the last few weeks have just been, I think, really amazing as Mark and Ryan have been taking us through Acts. We've been seeing in the life of the early church what was going on, the highs and the lows. And the thing that amazes me always is how instructive that is for us today, here 2,000-some years later. In the passage that we're going to read today, I believe we're going to see uh, fickleness, we're going to see faithfulness, and we're also going to see leadership weirdness. We're going to see fickleness of people that vacillate up and down, and, and we're going to see the faithfulness of those who follow Christ. We're going to see the, the weird way that people relate to leadership. It can be strange. It can be strange even, believe it or not, perish the thought in churches. So why don't you open your Bibles or open your smartphones we're in acts 14 <clears throat> as you uh, as you go there um so the the physician and the historian luke wrote this account for us very fulsome account lots of detail i was just talking with jeff about it backstage it's amazing how much he he puts in here and um i thought what we'd do is get a little old school and just read a whole chapter what do you think about that bit of old school you know uh, public reading of scripture. You guys down for that? Am I kind of in the way? I'm going to go to the side, so it's not an issue. Is that better? Probably not good for you guys now. Whatever I do, it's not going to work. So I'm just going to, um, just going to read it out here. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they, the apostles, found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul and he was, uh, sorry, as Paul was speaking, Paul looked directly at him or intently, some translations will say, Paul looked directly or intently at this guy and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. 
Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the, the disciples had gathered around him, he got up. He got knocked down, but he got up again. You can write a song about that. And he went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in the city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each of them uh, in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had reached, uh, preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So sorry about the accent, but um, good to read a chunk every now and again. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active, and it is sharper than a double-edged sword. I just, we just open up our hearts today asking that you would pierce us with your word. Lord, I'm so insufficient, so frazzed, and, and just crispy. So Lord, I ask that you would wipe me off of the stage, that you would speak to us. Thank you that you are intimately involved and that you speak to your people. We hold on to that truth and praise you for it. So we're ready, Lord, to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> have, you, um, have you ever gone from hero to zero? Or even worse, have you ever had someone who was your hero go to zero? We've seen it happening a lot lately. Public opinion can just turn really quickly, can't it? There was a time when I was on the farm when I was still the hero for one of my younger sisters. I'm a dad now and I've got three young kids, so I'm still their hero. There is no mountain I cannot scale. There is no bear I cannot, you know, out-wrestle. Um, and you guys with teenagers are rolling your eyes thinking, just wait, buddy. Um, but, but at this time, my sister was little. I was about 17 or 18. She was seven or eight years old. And she had bought in one of the horses that had, it had been out running with the Mustangs, with the wild horses. 
It had been broken in, but then it had gone off and gone sort of wild. And she got it in, and she was there, had it in the stall, and she was, she was combing the horse, you know, my little pony, I love my little pony, doing this and plating its hair and stuff. And I saw the horse's eyes, and they were kind of crazy, I thought, you know. But I thought, well, I'm the hero, and I am, yea, verily, the man from Snowy River, not. <laughs> so <clears throat> I said, okay, honey, um, let me, let's shove a saddle on this thing, and let's... Let's take it for a ride. She said, you take it for a ride. I'm not taking it for a ride. So I put the saddle on, hopped on the horse, and it tensed up, and then it went, you know, went limp, and it slowly backed out. It was like a close fenced stall. Then it went out through the corral, got to the edge of the corral, just outside the gate. It was off at a billion miles an hour. And I'm like, and then I could feel the horse like tightening up its muscles, planted its feet and, and sir, could you stand up? Could you stand up? Yeah. Stand up and wave to everyone. Okay. That's where I landed. Right? But of course, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let an animal dominate me. I am the victor. I'm not the vanquished. So I got the horse, got it back in. Of course, with horse psychology, you've got to show that you are the ruler. You are the one who, you know, is the boss man, okay? So got her back in and, you know, dusted myself off, hopped back on the horse, same thing, slowly came out of the stall, slowly walked to the edge of the corral, and now I'm thinking, now, I'm the boss now. I mean, I've got the firm grip on the reins and all. Got to the edge of the corral. You know what happened? A million miles an hour, and I'm trying to pull the brakes and everything, and... I felt that familiar sensation of the horse, like. And, sir, way back there, can you? No, you know how, you know how that story goes, right? I saw my sister's eyes. They were like, oh, right. Zero, you know? But as you, as you read this, don't you think it's fascinating? Like, you see what happens. These guys, are, their message is heard, people believe, and then, but we want to have a plot against you. And then my wife calls it like a play in three parts, this, this chapter. In the second part, doing some amazing stuff. They're about to, to like sacrifice bulls to these guys and worship them like gods. And then a verse and a half later, they actually stone Paul to the point where they think he's dead. As it turns out, he's not completely dead. He's just mostly dead, to quote from the princess bride. But, and he gets up. But it's like, that's like they vacillate from there to there to there to there and... And also the way they deal with leadership. There's this whispering campaign that goes on, to quote from the message. You know, there's, there's these people who are jealous. There's this pedestal leadership, then they're knocked off the pedestal. All this wonkiness. Oh, it's so 2,000 years ago. We don't do that today, do we? As you come to the start of it, we see that Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. Remember, um, as we've been going through this series, the kind of theme uh, of the whole book of Acts appears in the first chapter. Uh, and when Jesus is speaking, he says, um, says, the Spirit will come upon you in power and you'll be my witnesses. So the Spirit comes upon you, okay? The Spirit fills us, follower of Jesus. Why? To be a witness. Okay, where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's geographic, we're going to see that today, but it's also metaphorical. It's also in your known place, right? 
You're going to be a witness in your known place, your workplace, your home space, your third space, the sports club, the community club that you're involved in. And also, we're going to be empowered to be witnesses in the place where we're less comfortable and in the place where we're least comfortable. All of them. You're empowered for all of them. But here, Paul and Barnabas, good Jewish guys, they went to the synagogue. Have we got that photo? of There's an old a synagogue um, photo that could be up on screen. This is from an archaeological dig, so it's not, it's not the one in Iconium, but it would have been very similar. And so they would have come in here and they would pull out the scroll and you would read from what they call the Tanakh, what, what we call the Old Testament. And then they would have spoken from that, exegeted from that. And Paul and Barnabas would have been talking about Christ because the truth is, when you read the Bible with cross eyes, you can see that all through the Old Testament, it points to the coming Messiah. There's this saying that the old is in the, uh, sorry, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Right? But as you read it, and Paul and Barnabas would have been saying, "Look, and this points to Christ, and look, this points to the coming Messiah." They would have been reminding these guys that that's what happened. It would have been a kind of garrulous crowd. Not like here where we're so quiet and respectful. Um, here they would have been shouting out, yeah, but what about that other thing? And well, Uncle Jimmy said this. And they would have been you know, going on like that. But these guys would have been there. But it says here, you see that um, there were some who refused to believe. An interesting turn of phrase, right? Those who refused to believe. It's really only in our day and age... It's a recent phenomenon that we think there can be a dissonance between what we say we believe and what we do. Back in this day, that was anathema, right? It was actually believe, obey, or disbelieve, disobey, with a hyphen. You either believe, obey, or you disbelieve, disobey. These guys here chose to disbelieve, disobey. Why? I don't know. Maybe the ethical teachings of Jesus and Messiah were just too full on. I mean, they're pretty full on. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's a hard teaching when you think about it, right? Live a life of radical generosity. Be a radical peacemaker. These are things that would have been hard to hear. I don't know why. But these guys refused to believe and they stirred it up or like I said, they started this whispering campaign, pouring poison in people's ears. So the disciples, well, they dug in. They kept on speaking boldly for the Lord and the Lord confirmed their message, it says, with these signs and wonders, these miracles. The thing is, we're not particularly comfortable with miracles and I, wanna, I just want to talk about that for a second because um, I think... I think we need to be more comfortable with it. We need to expect that more. We need to expect God to move more. I think of the three things uh, that are wrong in our thinking about miracles is that they're not going to happen. I just want you to know on the basis of the word of God, on the basis of my own experience here and abroad, God is still radically involved with his people and he still shows up. The second thing I want to say is that the miracles... Attach no glory to the person who is doing them. That's, that's wrong thinking. That's really dangerous, actually. So what happens here? The miracles come and they undergird the message. And that's the third thing. The miracles don't ever, are not in and of themselves, 
they point to the message of Christ. They point to the message of this Saviour who saves us. You know, so it's, uh, it gives us opportunity to witness to the buddy at work. You know, yeah, man, I was just so down last week. And, and that mate of mine from church, he came up and he, and he gave me that word of encouragement. There's no way he could have known those things that he just, God gave him a word of knowledge right for me and it encouraged me right when I needed it. And the person at work thinking, wow, well, this dude isn't normally flaky, but he's talking about crazy kind of stuff. But he's normally believable and they become intrigued. Or we're sharing with someone, we're in the you know, shopping center and you know, I was really sick last week and my home group, who just, they just love us so much, they came around, they bought us a tuna casserole, cared for us, you know, then they laid hands on me and prayed for me and I was healed. And it gives you an opportunity to move into this conversation. They're not in and of themselves, they don't attach glory to the people who are doing it. But here, it undergirds the message that the disciples have been sharing. But then it says that the apostles found out about this plot. So they'd been faithful, right? They'd been faithful to be there. But what about faithfulness when, what do they do? Well, they bail. They just run for the hills, baby. I mean, is that, is that very faithful? Shouldn't they have just stubbornly just stood there and kept on speaking until they were lynched or whatever? Well, I don't know. I don't happen to think, actually, the disciples are outside of God's will by running for uh, Lyconia and, and Derby and so on. Uh, there's a place for wisdom within faithfulness. A mentor of mine used to say, unless God is like categorically and you're for sure certain telling you to do a stupid thing, you should do the wise thing. <laughs> the scriptures are just full and replete with exhortations towards wisdom. Sequential thinking judging what's going to happen, seeking godly counsel. What do you think about this? If I did this, what happens next? And, and so on and so forth. There's a place for wisdom within faithfulness. I believe that, that these guys were faithful in, in what they were doing. The crowd was up and down. There was probably people who were very pro, people who were very anti, and a bunch of people in the middle who, who flip-flopped about. That's my, that's my guess if I know uh, anything about human dynamics. Thus ends the first part of this uh, account that happens in Acts 14. The leadership weirdness is that there was jealousy, that there's whispering, gossiping, poison being poured in people's ears. Friends, let's not do that. Let's not do that in our workplaces. Let's not do that in our churches. It's like a cancer at the heart of Jesus' community, gossiping talking about a problem when you're not part of the solution what happens next well they bail they run for the hills and they're out here in Lystra now Lystra was a smaller place this is all in in modern day uh, Turkey uh, can I have there's a there's a slide of the map of what's going on here oh thanks guys you guys are awesome right so they're in Iconium present day Konya in uh, Turkey and they, and they head out to, uh, to Lystra, you can see down there, up in, in the hills and, and away. And chances are that Lystra was smaller, uh, it doesn't look like it had a synagogue. They're here, they're out sharing in the open spaces, the marketplace, probably quite near the city gates where the beggars would have been. And there's one guy in particular who's there begging. He's been crippled from birth. 
just an oppressed guy. Not good in that day and age. Even in our own day and age, people with special needs are discriminated against. We're getting better, I think, a little bit. But back in this day, it was, it was hard. It was really tough. And if you were Jewish, you weren't allowed to go in and, and worship in the holy places because you were somehow lesser than. That was their belief. And if, whether you were Jewish or whether you were pagan, there was an awful thought, an awful belief that, that somehow this was just desserts for you because of something you had done or even worse, even more unjust, something your parents had done. In fact, in John 9, some of Jesus' disciples say that to him. They're talking about a guy born blind and they say, well, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. God is not like that. God is not vindictive. He's not capricious. He's not mean like that. Your understanding, really, your concept of God is, is wrong if you think that hardship equates with fault. That's not right. For these guys who worship the, the Greek pantheon of gods, well, it was really, by then it was a Roman province, so it was kind of a, the Romans just stole all the Greek gods and renamed them. They didn't have much imagination. But, but that was absolutely what those gods were like. They were vindictive, petty, jealous. They would have fights and quarrels with each other. They would have sex with each other and sex with humans, create demigods. It was just a mess. Kind of not like the transcendent uh, God that we even see in the, in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and definitely in the New Testament. It wasn't like the transcendent, all-powerful, omniscient, uh, omnipotent God. They were kind of somewhere in the middle, more like, more actually, like, weirdly, actually, like um, celebrities are today. We hear about them, we gossip about them, we laugh about them, we look at what they wore to a wedding, we, all that sort of stuff. We read their Twitter feeds, oh, oh that's like, whoa, I can't believe he said that. It's, it's exactly the same. These guys had the Twitter feeds rolling of the gods that they had back then. But it's fascinating. I, I love this little, little eye-opener here. Paul looked directly or intently at this guy and he, he saw that he had faith. How do you... Oh, not yet. Thanks for that. Not yet. Getting to that in a second. <laughs> so how does, um, how does Paul see the guy's faith? Don't you think it's a fascinating thought? I think he was attuned to the Spirit. Uh, I don't know. Was there something that the guy was doing? Uh, who, who knows? But a miraculous healing happens. Stand up on your feet, the guy walks. And, and, and the, the people there are like, Whoa, the gods have come down to us in human form. And they call, you know, call Barnabas Zeus because he's the big guy. And Paul, the talkative guy, they call him Hermes. So Zeus was like... The king of the gods, you know, the guy with lightning bolts in his hand. I crush you, I crush you, you know that one. And, uh, and Hermes was a guy who was the talkative main speaker. Why did they think that it was Zeus and Hermes? Why didn't they think it was some kind of healing gods or lesser gods? Or It's interesting. Uh, maybe it's because of the size differential, the fact that Paul was talky-talky and Barnabas was just big and in, you know, bigger than life. I don't know. Um, but interestingly enough, and this is where that picture can come up, there was this belief in that that neck of the woods, that many generations before Zeus and Hermes had actually rocked up. This is a, a painting by the medieval um, Flemish artist Rubens. And so this is Zeus, this is Hermes, and, uh, and this is some peasants. But the story was that the Zeus and Hermes rocked up to this part of the world and they needed somewhere to sleep for the night. Like I said, these gods are somewhere in the middle. Okay, They knocked on a thousand doors, no one let him in. Eventually these guys... 
Philemon and, and Bachia, uh, let them in. And, um, and they just loved them. They even offered to kill their goose. So God said, no, don't kill the goose. And it's, just, it's a whole story. It's in um, the, the Roman poet Ovid wrote about it. Anyway, but Zeus and Hermes, what they did was they said, well, you guys are awesome. So we're going to make your little mud hut, we're going to make it into a shrine or a temple for us. And then we're going to kill everyone else. And they wiped out the rest of the village, right, by a flood. So who knows? That's it. Thanks for the, letting me dork out on uh, medieval you know, painters. Anyway, but... The point being that these guys, um, maybe they thought it, maybe that was going through their mind. Well, we don't get that wrong again. Even the, you know, even the priest of Zeus is like, yeah, I don't want to mess that one up again. Let's just hedge our bets. I mean, these guys don't really look like gods, but, but you know, what does it matter? We kill a ball, we sacrifice to them, you know, and sort of, you know, see how we go. This is an amazing moment because it, it took the guys a while to realize what was going on but they were being elevated to a pedestal can't you say leadership weirdness in elevating people to pedestals and how wrong that is i see it all the time i see it in culture i see it in politics we see it even in churches as a pastor can i say it's a really really damaging thing so often when i'm caring for people counseling them it's like oh I was part of this church and this person who I thought was just so amazing they did something that sucked and they fell off the pedestal and they will always somehow fall off the pedestal every single time eventually they will and so I ended up just hating on church and hating on them and hating on Christians and hating on Jesus and you're like that's the problem don't do it it's flat at the foot of the cross, guys. This week, I mean, I, I serve here in a capacity in our church as a, as a pastor. I, I do that. This week, I've been arguing with my wife. I had a standoff yesterday with one of my kids. Went for far too long. My kids don't have perfect dental hygiene. I get up late sometimes. I, I'm, I'm a mess as much as you are. Don't ever do it. My wife and I started a little um, Bible college in Australia. Don't think like American seminary. It's like 14 full-time students, I think, is the most that's ever been. So small, small, small. But one day the student said, Nick, how come you never let us call you pastor? Why don't you ever let us call you principal? How come you never let us call you doctor? And they went on and on. And I said, guys, okay, just shut up for a second. If you want to, you can call me by my true title. And there he is, like, prick up, you know. And I said, if you want to, you can call me Nick, beloved son of the Most High God. We'll sound a bit like a cult, but if you want to, you can do it, you know. Here's what I want to say. Friends, don't put people on a pedestal. These guys did it. The disciples were distraught about this. They ran out into the crowd. They did the inverse Superman. You know, they tore open their garments. There's another painting, uh, just because I like to dork out on, you know, medieval stuff. Can you guys even see that? A little bit, maybe. And look, here's, um, here's, I think it's Barnabas. He's tearing open his garment. He tears it open. Instead of an S on the inside, there's a shirt, and it says, just a dude. (laughs) Right? And here's the guys, they're bringing the bull just beneath the guitars and the whatever. They're going to sacrifice them. And these guys are like, no, don't do it. Don't you understand? This is, this is not right. They're distraught. Don't let, don't let God's glory rest upon us. It's him alone. 
It's him who does it. We're just broken, cracked vessels. The water of life pours through us sometimes by God's good grace. But we are dusty, broken, cracked vessels. And then this amazing thing happens, this amazing uh, explanation. We only have a short account, a truncated little bit of it, but about the way they share the gospel. And I think it's, I think it's really fascinating how they do it. Because what they do is actually they enter into the worldview of the people that they're talking with and look from the inside out. Now, some of you guys are thinking, worldview, don't know what that is. Sounds weird. Others of you are thinking, I can't believe this is like bringing back nightmares of first year psychology at university. But I'm just going to explain worldviews just for 30 seconds. And I'm going to need, sir, can I steal your glasses? Thank you. Okay. These are nice looking glasses. You'd be lucky if you get these back. (laughs) So the simplest way to think about it is a worldview is the lenses through which we look to make sense of the world. So it's a combination of our experience, our philosophy, our spirituality, um, our thinking, all that we've gone through in our life. It's the, the first thing you need to know is every single one of us, whoa, every single one, are you there, guys? Is anyone there? <laughs> every single one of us has a worldview. 7.62 billion people on planet Earth. And whether we know it consciously or not, we all answer four questions. Oh, here they are, up on screen, up on screen. Who am I? Where am I? What's the problem? What's the solution? Whether we're Hindu, whether we're Muslim, whether we're New Age, whether we're just nothing at all, thank you very much, whether we're Christian, whatever we are, we all answer these questions. So like the secular humanist, hedonist, well, who am I? I'm homo sapiens. I'm a, I'm a man or a woman. Okay, but where am I? I'm on this rock called Earth and I'm shooting around this huge gaseous ball called the sun. That's where I am. What's the problem? The problem is I can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) What's the solution? But I try. But I try, but I try. Right? Okay. So they may not consciously think that, but they absolutely... So what about those of us who who know Jesus and follow Jesus? Who am I? I'm a beloved son or daughter of the Most High God. Where am I? I'm in the palm of his hand. I'm the apple of his eye. He looks at me. He loves me. breathes life to me. He gives me good things. What's the problem? Problem is me. Problem is my brokenness, my sin, my selfishness, my hate, my enmity, my my shame, and that of the 7.62 billion brothers and sisters that I have. And we mix it all up, and it's this gargantuan ball of awfulness. What's the solution? The solution is Jesus, God's Son, who came to earth, lived a perfect life. Because of that, went to the death, went to his death on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. He took my sin and your sin. And he took our shame, our condemnation, our hatred. He took it upon himself and he buried it in infinity. Then he rose again victorious from the grave to prove that he was the victor over sin and death and shame and condemnation. That's the solution. All of us have a worldview. Thank you, sir. So these guys 
These guys, I believe, got inside the heads of these people and, and, or got inside their worldview best as they can. Very instructive for us, hey, about how we share the gospel. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was flying out of Nepal uh, with a couple of people I'd taken there. And there was a couple of young guys sitting next to me. I want to call them urban hipsters, which is weird, but Nepalese urban hipsters. And... Um, and like, I just really, we had hours and hours, and I was asking him these worldview questions. And what about this? And what do you think about that? And, and again and again and again to the point where they just kind of reached that you know, saturation point or exhaustion point maybe. And then, of course, they want to ask you, and you have this great dialogue. But it's really instructive, hey, about we can, how we can share about the life that we have in Christ. These guys here, you see that what they were talking about was things that were within these people's worldview. These gods that you, were, you were, uh, thought we were and that you were um, you know, sacrificing to, you know you've created these, right? You know that, can't you see the faults in these, in these gods? These are these worthless things. Oh, they're so, you know, they're so behind the times. I mean, nowadays we're just so refined, aren't we? Except that we have gods. Sex, money, power, the gods of our own creation. You know you become like the gods you worship. If your God is cold, like money, you're going to be probably pretty cold. If your God is sort of facile and shallow about the way you look, you know, I hate to say it, but probably you say you're going to become, right? Okay, so, but they get inside these guys' heads and they say, you know, you know, actually there's a transcendent God. He's a God of deep kindness, not a capricious God like the gods that that you guys have been talking about. This God is kind, and you know he's given you the seasons. These are an agrarian people, by the way, like a farming people. He's given you the seasons. He's given you that deep sense of joy and purpose in your heart, and, and they go in and they talk about these things. And, and even so, they just stop the people from sacrificing to them. And then the tide turns. Some of the guys came down from Antioch and from Iconium where they'd been before. These pourers of poison in people's ears, these whisperers. And they stoned Paul. You know, can I have that picture up on screen about um, stoning? Because I think it's so alien to us and so far away from our experience. You know, there's these... What, what it is, guys would, get, guys would get rocks the size of maybe a a head or a fist, and they would, they would throw them at someone, but you were so close, you were within spitting distance, of the, you probably spit as well, but you're, you're right there. You'd throw rocks at a person until they fell down, then you'd keep on throwing the rocks until they died. I mean, just can you, can you imagine the level of, well, clearly traumatic for the person being stoned, normally die, but think of the psychological trauma going on in someone to see that, or even worse, to participate in that. How demeaning, how stripping away of your very personhood that would be. And are there children there involved? We don't know. Um, most probably there were. Most biblical historians think that in the crowd was a, a boy by the name of Timothy. Uh, I'd say almost certainly not taking part in it. But on a later missionary journey, Paul comes back and he finds Timothy 
and he disciples him and he trains him up. And Timothy becomes uh, one of the chief instigators of the movement of God spreading throughout the rest of the world. He's a key guy. You'll know it if, if you read the New Testament. And, um, but Paul often reminds him, you know the sufferings that I endured. You, you know, you, I'm, I can't bulldust you. You know if I was faithful under that, under that weight. You know if I suffered persecutions and you know what I was like. Timothy did. Chances are he was there. And there are some other disciples there too. There's those who are true. And they're there, and I don't know if they're weeping over Paul or just wiping the, the dust off of him, thinking, this is a guy, I mean, he was sharing about Christ. He wasn't even doing anything, you know, terrible. It didn't seem like that. He was talking from the scriptures about how Jesus is the Christ. And they killed him, and they're there, and, and Paul gets up. It's an amazing testament to Paul's faithfulness that he hops up and he goes back into town. Did you notice that? He goes back in, walking past maybe the people who had stoned him a couple of hours before, limping, leaving a trail of blood. Then the next day, he and Barnabas go to Derby when the last section were coming into land here. And we just read across that. But you know, it was almost 60 miles from Lystra to, to Derby, according to archaeological evidence. That's a long way, man. Whether it took a day or two to walk there, I don't care. Walking 60 miles is a long way. Bloodied and bruised, black-eyed, holding Barnabas. We don't know. But I think it's a pretty amazing testament to Paul's faithfulness. The people were fickle. Yeah, these guys are amazing. Yeah, that message makes sense. Well, I'll tell you what, let's uh, see what they're doing. Wow, they healed that guy. Okay, let's sacrifice a bull to them. You know what? Instead, let's stone them. You know, up and down, up and down, up. And then it's also a testament to the disciples' faithfulness. What about Barnabas? Where was he when Paul was getting stoned? I think he uh, did the Houdini. I think he was wise. Anyway, who knows? But here we are in the last little section and... And in Derby, they preached and won a large number of disciples. You notice, not fans, not converts, disciples, people who are actively engaged. And then they did this thing. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Can I have that map up again of the return uh, journey? Okay, so let me think. The, the solid line, yeah, the solid line is the journey out. The dotted line is the journey back. So they're in Derby, okay? They could have gone from there back down to Antioch. They'd been away for almost two years, okay? But they didn't do that. They went back the way, back through Lystra, Iconium, the other Antioch. There's two Antiochs. Sorry for the confusion, but hey, as Americans with, you know, apparently more than one Bakersfield, right? Or Springfield, <laughs> even in the Simpsons, okay? So let's deal with it. Anyway, so... And they go back, and the whole way, this long, long way home. What are they doing? They're strengthening the disciples, and they're encouraging them to remain true in the faith. They do this amazing thing. What they actually do is they set up in each of these places. They give them the full capacity to be operating little um, pockets of Jesus' community. They give them the doctrine, they uh, pray for them, they fast with them, they appoint leaders amongst them, and they release them in God's name. 
You need to know, if, if you're here at North Coast Calvary, we absolutely believe that every single one of us is empowered by God to radically transform whatever context we're in. You are a fully awed person by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given that to you. He has given you a mantle. He has given you a place that you can be the hands and feet of Jesus right there. You don't need someone else to do it for you. You don't need one of the um, pastors or one of the directors to do it for you. You don't need a leader to do it for you. Of course we want to come alongside you and encourage you and strengthen you. Whatever we can do, of course we want to do that. But you are fully empowered to and friends. Have you looked out at the earth? It's in a dire place. It needs you to step up. The Lord Jesus has given you that and he's filled you with the Spirit so that you can be a world changer. You need to do it. I feel like I'm about to preach here. Is anyone listening? <laughs> Guys, you, that's what we're called to do. And if you're a newbie here and you've been dragged by some weird but well-meaning friend, don't worry, it's not a cult. We're not going to make you drink Kool-Aid. It's nothing like that. I'm talking to the people who have decided, yep, I'm going to follow Jesus. Not just have him as Savior, have him as Lord. And that means his spirit fills me with power. And I can be a radical functionary. I can be a radical agent for his truth, his justice, his compassion, his righteousness. I can do that. You can do that. I'm going to ask the band to come back out just now. Um, and we're going to end and we're going to have a chance to worship. And there's a prayer team who we have here who are going to be down the front to pray for us. Who, who want to move in that more. Who have felt the Spirit speaking to us today through the passage of of um, scripture and we want to move in that more but you know how they were strengthening and encouraging one another I've got these mates um, some are actually here today and um, we're in each other's lives we're in each other's back pockets there's, there's no junk about me that they do not know and we have breakfast a lot but we're catching up at meals in each other's houses we're in each other's Space, you know, unrelenting to each other. And um, if you're not in a small group, I'll just encourage you. I, I, I can't see how we can grow without that. Um, we come here and this is the locker room. Out there's the playing field. But we also need to have huddles. And I think of it like, like that to extend Mark's analogy, right? And there's times where these guys, they correct me on stuff. Like get a brick and, you know, like say, I love you, crack, I love you, crack, and they'll do that. But most of the time, these buddies that I have just ring up or just pop around. And it's to strengthen and encourage. And friends, we need to do that to each other. So as we go, if you're coming for prayer, come for prayer. If you're going out to catch up with Jeff Moore and, and the guys out in the courtyard, um, then do it. But be someone who brings strengthening and encouragement to one another. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.